Welcome to the November podcast from the Stevenson Harwood Pensions Law Team. You can subscribe and listen on iTunes or by visiting our Pensions Hub at www.pensionshub.com. I'm Julia Ward, the Senior Knowledge Development Lawyer in the Pensions Team, and I have with me Julia Cooper, an Associate in the team. Today we will discuss the first Pensions Ombudsman determination on the new transfer out regulations, some useful guidance for trustees on buy-ins and buy-outs, as well as a useful ombudsman case for trustees who are considering returning surplus to an employer on the wind-up of a defined benefit pension scheme. We will first, however, discuss an important case which considers whether the pensions ombudsman is a competent court. Thanks, Julia. The background to the relevant decision is the not uncommon situation of trustees discovering for various reasons that there has been an overpayment of benefits to members of a defined benefit pension scheme. One way to rectify this is for trustees to set off the overpayment against a member's future benefits through recruitment. Section 91 of the Pensions Act 1995 provides that no set-off can be exercised in respect of a member's benefits unless an exemption applies. One exemption is to allow set-off where there is to correct a payment made to the member in error. However, where the member disputes the amount of the set-off, the set-off cannot be exercised unless the obligation in question has become enforceable under an order of a competent court. In the case of the Pensions Ombudsman v CMG Pension Trustees Limited, the Appeal Court was asked to consider the meaning of competent court, and in particular, if the Ombudsman was a competent court for these purposes. The judge held that any determination or direction from the Ombudsman will be final and binding on the member and the trustees of the scheme, subject to an appeal on a point of law. The county court cannot revisit the substance of the dispute and determinations and directions of the Ombudsman are enforceable without the need for further judicial input. The Ombudsman is not, however, a competent court for the purposes of Section 91. Therefore, where a member disputes the amount of a set-off, the trustees will need to seek enforcement of the Ombudsman's determination by getting an order from the county court. This is, however an administrative step only, and there is no requirement for the court to consider the merits of the matter. Thanks, Julia. The Ombudsman has recently published a significant determination, being the first one where it has considered the application of the new transfer out regulations. In the case of Mrs W, the Ombudsman rejected a complaint against the trustee of a scheme that the member's transfer had been unnecessarily delayed by the unreasonable identification of an amber flag for overseas investments in the receiving scheme. The member was referred by the trustee to Money Helper. The member had contended that this was the incorrect interpretation of the transfer regulations and had resulted in a delay that meant the member's transfer value was reduced by the time the transfer was effected. Observing that it was not unreasonable for the trustee to determine that an amber flag was present, the Ombudsman referred to guidance from the Pensions Regulator and the Department for Work and Pensions, which states that the purpose of the transfer regulations is to catch investments in assets or funds where the jurisdiction is lax, non-existent or allows opaque corporate structures. As such, it is possible to apply a wide definition to overseas investments and therefore apply the amber flag framework to protect members from scams. The judgment will come as welcome news for trustees who have to apply the transfer regulations in an industry which still cannot agree on which overseas investments constitute an amber flag. It would support the idea that trustees can err on the side of caution, having regards to the information provided to them by the member and the guidance of their legal advisers. 
the Ombudsman observed that determining whether or not there are overseas investments is a decision which is reserved to the trustee of the scheme and that the member had failed to demonstrate that in reaching the decision there had been improper performance of the trustee's duties. The Ombudsman also opined that the current wording of the transfer regulations may not be aligned with their intended practical application, but observed that this was not sufficient to find that the trustee's decision was unreasonable in this case. The trustees were not therefore criticised for following the letter of the law. Trustees should be aware of a new guide that the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association has published on buy-ins and buy-outs. This guide is aimed at trustees considering embarking on one of these de-risking solutions. It provides a useful overview of some of the key considerations that trustees should take into account, as well as the key steps of a transaction. In particular, the guide discusses what a buy-in and buy-out is, the benefits and considerations that trustees should take into account, the crucial elements of the transactions, investment strategies and member communication. It discusses the main steps of a transaction and highlights the importance of trustees ensuring that their scheme data is accurate in order to obtain insurer engagement and ultimately proceed to a successful transaction. The guide provides a useful overview for trustees, together with a checklist of points to consider when conducting due diligence on insurance companies. In the ever-competitive de-risking market, schemes need to make themselves as attractive as possible to insurers. For any trustees considering these options, it is worth having a look at this guide. The Stevenson Harwood de-risking team are on hand to guide trustees through these projects in a seamless manner. Thanks, Julia. Our second significant Ombudsman decision for this podcast considers the case of Mr S, where the Ombudsman was asked to consider the actions of trustees who returned a scheme surplus to a sponsoring employer on the wind-up of a scheme. In this case, Mr S was a member of the Bristol Water section of the Water Company's pension scheme. Bristol Water's PRC was the sponsoring employer. In 2018, the trustee entered into an agreement with Aviva to purchase bulk annuities to secure the liabilities of the section, after which the section would be wound up. In July 2021, the trustee issued a letter to members notifying them that the wind-up of the section had been formally triggered, that there would be a surplus of assets after all the section liabilities had been secured, and that the trustee proposed returning that surplus to Bristol Water after the liabilities had been secured. It invited comments from the section members on this proposal. Mr Est opposed the decision, feeling that the surplus should be passed on to members, and made complaints through the trustee's internal complaints process before lodging a complaint with the Ombudsman. In making its decision, the trustee had considered the various courses of surplus and held that one of the main reasons the section was in surplus was due to the fact that Bristol Water had made significant additional contributions into the section between 2005 and 2016 at the trustee's request. The trustee saw actuarial advice which confirmed that Bristol Water's additional contributions, rather than other factors, were primarily responsible for the section surplus. Mr S argued that the surplus was primarily attributable to returns on the section's investments, that in returning the surplus to Bristol Water, the trustee had not acted in the member's best interests, and that the employee contributions had previously been increased at a time when Bristol Water were not contributing to the section. He also argued that the member booklet stated that any residue after wind-up would be returned to members, that the trustee's memorandum of association stipulated that no surplus would be returned to the sponsoring employer, and that the trustee's consultations with Bristol Water had biased its decision-making. The Ombudsman did not uphold the complaint. 
The memorandum of association was irrelevant as it related to the assets of the trustee company rather than those of the section, which were governed by the scheme rules. Under the scheme rules, the power to augment members' benefits was clearly described as discretionary and that it should be exercised in consultation with Bristol Water. There was no indication that the trustee had fettered its discretion to favour Bristol Water and minutes of trustee meetings confirmed that the views of Bristol Water had been taken into account alongside other factors. Moreover, the scheme rules clearly indicated that Bristol Water could receive funds from the section. The Ombudsman accepted that the trustees' actuarial evidence that Bristol Water's additional contributions were the main reason for the existence of the surplus. The Ombudsman also held, following the case of Merchant Navy Ratings Pension Trustee Limited and Stenoline, that the trustee would be acting in accordance with the purpose of the trust in returning a surplus to Bristol Water after the members' payments had been secured in full following wind-up. Again, the minutes of trustee meetings provided evidence that the trustee had taken into account all relevant information in reaching its decision. Finally, the Ombudsman noted that as a matter of law, information provided to scheme members, such as member booklets, are not considered to override the formal provisions of the scheme. The Ombudsman therefore held that the trustee had interpreted the scheme rules correctly in reaching its decision. This case is a good example of how trustees should approach the decision-making process when returning a surplus to the employer. In particular, the case highlights the importance of minuting trustees' reasons for making a decision to return a surplus, seeking appropriate professional advice, including actuarial advice when making a decision, and of ensuring that any decision taken is in accordance with the rules of the scheme or section in question. Thanks, Julia. For our final topic, we will mention the first transfer of a pension scheme to a defined benefit super fund. On the 6th of November 2023, Clara announced that they have reached an agreement with the trustees of Sears. Clara was established in 2017 as the member first consolidator for defined benefit pension schemes. Through consolidation, Clara has expressed its aim of bringing together schemes and replacing existing sponsors in order to give greater security to members whilst the schemes progress towards buyout. Sears members will be the first to enter a UK pension super fund. Clara will be taking over Sears' 590 million assets and providing 30 million of new capital which will benefit member security and assist with Sears' progression towards an insured buyout. Both the DWP and the regulator have expressed their delight at the transfer, although the regulator has maintained its position that an insurance deal is preferable for member security and that schemes should only transfer to a super fund if there is no realistic prospect of buyout in the foreseeable future. Clara has been affected by the rise in interest rates and the significant drop of defined benefit schemes in deficit. Experts have indicated that Clara will need to engage in further transactions in the near future in order to demonstrate the viability of its business model and retain its usefulness in the market. Clara is currently the only super fund to have received authorisation from the regulator, with pension super fund arrival to Clara being sidelined after failing to achieve this. That's all for this month's podcast. Further detail can be found in our November snapshot, which is available on our Pensions Hub at www.pensionshub.com. You can listen to this podcast again and subscribe to the series on iTunes or on the Pensions Hub. Thanks very much for listening and join us next time for the next round of updates.